Father in heaven, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the words of Jesus that clearly point out that there are ways to remember. Guide us this morning as we look at those ways to remember. Guide us to look at our families, our interactions, our connection with you to see if we are remaining connected and remembering. Help us to see your monuments clearly this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon here could have been done before we uh, did the fall of mankind in the fall. But as I thought about it, I wanted to have people see clearly the promise restore as their savior. And then we look at these monuments of oneness as ways that we can practically, individually and corporately and as families stay connected to that savior. And so as I think of monuments, I think there's all kinds of monuments, aren't there? I mean, you can go on just a road trip any summer or any time you get some time and you'll come across little monuments here or there along the roads or if you want to go to some place a little further away. Anybody been here? Mount Rushmore? How many of you been there? I heard some yeses. Okay, so you all know that there's a little bit of a process. You know, you, you finally get in there, you see the, the, the rows of flags as you're going up towards it there and you pick out, of course, your flag, California or I was looking at Oregon or Anyway, you're right there, and this is a normal daytime view. But how many of you have been there in the evening when they had the evening program where they light the faces up? Anybody? A few of us? Oh, my wife, of course. But one time we decided, since we were camping out there in the Black Hills, we would go back over there, take, make the trip, and we'd come up to the, the monument there, and we would be there at nighttime for the program. And if you've been there for that program, the, the goal of that program is to inspire you to feel proud to be an American. I mean, that lady who stood there and sang the song that she sang, the patriotic song that she sang, left me thinking, wow, I'm proud to be an American. And then this video clip came into play, and it showed the history, not only of the monument, but this idea of how this monument pointed to key aspects of our United States history. And when it was over with, I don't remember, did you ask me, Marie, did I know all that stuff? Uh, yeah, I, I had re researched some of that stuff. I didn't know everything about that monument. But it was amazing. I felt proud to be an American. Not in a sense of pride, in a negative sense, but in a sense that, wow, we've been through a lot of history as a country. And those faces really don't even begin to encapsulate everything we've been through. All the struggles, all the negative decisions we made as a country, all the positives we made as a country. It didn't encapsulate every one of them. But I remember during that night that I was sitting there listening to the program and the, the lights went out and then they lit those faces and that's a view at night. I couldn't get the picture because my camera blurred up, but there, was a, there are the monument, there is that monument standing there on a lit night. And the author of those monuments, he says this, a monument's dimensions should be determined by the importance to the civilization of the events commemorated. So the, the size of the monument should be in proportion to the events that they are remembering. We are not here trying to carve an epic, portray a moonlit scene, or write a sonnet. Neither are we dealing with mystery or tragedy, but rather the construction and dramatic moments or crises in our amazing history. And that's what I left there feeling like, wow, we have been through a lot as a country. And yes, these, these rocks are, these faces carved in the rock, are, it's a huge monument. But really, 
if it's a monument, and not to undermine that one, the monument should be determined by the importance to the civilization of the events commemorated. There has to be a monument a lot bigger than that one, isn't there? For us to be sitting here today at worshiping the Creator, there, there are monuments that He has set up that make this one pale into insignificance. And this morning, I'm going to look at some of those with you. Last time, we looked at the cross and how the cross was there, how Jesus provides a gift of eternal life to us. We accept that gift by asking for it. And in 1 John chapter 5, it says, pretty much, all you got to do is ask. Have you asked for the gift of eternal life? If you ask for the gift of eternal life, then it changes you. And in a way, you begin to be shaped and formed. In a way, you begin to be a living, breathing monument to the Savior. But the cross stands as a monument for all time. Quotation says it this way, the sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin, a way of making and reconnecting us with God, a way of oneness, okay, is the great truth around which all other truths cluster. Every single truth that you know of, whether it's the 27 that you agreed to when you became a Seventh-day Adventist or now the 28, every single one of them cluster around this, this atonement of Jesus. In order to be rightly understood and appreciated, every truth in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. So there we are on Tuesday nights looking at the book of Matthew and some people wonder why is it all about Jesus? Clearly because Matthew believed it was all about Jesus. And so we find this author as well. You might recognize her, Ellen White, in the Gospel Workers, page 315. She, she presses on. She says, I present before you the great grand monument of mercy and regeneration, salvation and redemption. What's the monument? The Son of God uplifted on the cross. This is to be the foundation of every discourse given by our ministers. And so here's Jesus, the great grand monument of mercy. And if you realize your scriptures, you know that from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about him. But, but in Revelation, it says that that was the plan before the foundation of the world. And so that monument has stood before our world was ever made and it still stands today. Unlike those mountains, the Mount Rushmore, and unlike buildings that we build that could tumble down, this monument stands. It stands firm as each one of us accepts it. And so we get the cross, but also we have rest. Rest. I think of this one here. This is pretty simple. You all know your your, your, your text about the Sabbath, right? And this one here is very clear. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So this completion, isn't that a monumental moment? How can civilization commemorate that? How could we chisel that into some kind of stone? We go on and it even points out it's a little bit deeper than stone. By the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And so here is a completed work. Here is rest in its fullness and it's linked to the creator God. And so every week, our rest stands as a monument 
if we would acknowledge that. And it goes on. And how does that link to mankind? Well, remember, see that verse there was down in chapter 2, 1 to 3. You go down to verse 15. It says, Jehovah God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And we looked at that before. This is a review. So he takes the man, which is a word that's used for marriage, relationship. So he takes the man. Puts, he's in a deep relationship with mankind. Makes him rest there in that garden of delight. And so, yes, you find there was the weekly cycle and the weekly rest, but there was a continual resting in God. So there's two monuments right here in this text. There's a relationship being mentioned, but there's also that physical rest that commemorates that relationship. Six days you're to gather it. Later on, we find this rest monument is resurfacing. See, a monument is something you remember. What if we forget? Then we need to remind ourselves. Just like there I was, 17, going on 18, and I had, I had someone shake my faith, and I'd for a while forgot about the Sabbath. Well, then God brings it back, doesn't he not? Doesn't he remind us? And every time you see a monument, it helps you remember something. And so down through time, they had forgotten. So God brings it back, especially in the episode of the Exodus. Talks about the seventh day, there will be not be any manna. So before the nation itself officially is established at Sinai, they've been called out of Egypt. They've been baptized, if you will. They've accepted the Savior. See, salvation comes really before keeping the Sabbath. You can keep the Sabbath without, without linking it to Jesus. Lots of people do that. In fact, uh, there was a, a tradition by Jacques Dukan. He mentioned that some people believe over in Israel that if you keep one Sabbath perfectly, then the Messiah will come. Okay? So they're keeping the Sabbath, but it's not about Jesus. So we can keep the Sabbath and have, have nothing to do with Jesus. And then is it a monument of mercy? No. And so this is before they had been called, called to be a nation, and they've been redeemed. So we must be redeemed to fully understand the Sabbath. And then they rest. And then we find it in our familiar place of Exodus. Remember this? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Okay? A reminder. Remember it. Yes, it's in a sense that they forgot, but it's also in a sense that we need to continue to remember it. It's a monument. It means something. And it even goes to all nations. Look at that down there in the last verse. You and your foreigner residing in your towns, you're all supposed to at some point be influenced by that rest. That's what was happening when there I was sitting in my leadership chair reading the Bible and other people started noticing. They started saying, well, what is this all about? And in my young faith, I didn't really know how to explain it, but I did the best I could, and we, we started as a small group keeping that Sabbath. But why should I keep it? Because I traded one set of rules for another. And I used to have, a, I used to have rules of conduct. And our little group, we had uh, our tough guy mafia book we would read and these other different other books we would read. And we had our rules of conduct. And if someone did this, and this was our response. If someone did that, this was our response. This is how we dealt with this situation and that situation. We had our protocol. And one of the rules in our group was you don't do drugs or it brings heat. You don't deal drugs or it'll bring even more heat. So we had rules. People have rules in society. They may not be the, the purest of, of motives, but there are rules. 
And I was in the group where I was the kind of person who would not get involved in relationships or other things because I had to enforce things if the group got into trouble. So did I just exchange those rules for these ones? Or is it something deeper? When I first kept that Sabbath, was it something deeper? I believe it was. It says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And what was happening was the Sabbath was resonating with me because it echoes all the way down through time to our time. That's what was happening. It was something deep down inside was telling me, this is important. This has something to do with your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I began to understand. It took me a few years after becoming a Seventh-day Adventist to understand how that day linked to Jesus. But I began to understand that. And we know who the creator is. He's the one that was called the word. He's the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the one who ushered in the Sabbath at the beginning to remind us continually to be a monument standing there to connect us to him every week. And it goes all the way down to Revelation, does it not? Our day. Because in Revelation it says, Worthy art thou, our, our Lord and our God, speaking of Jesus, to receive the glory and the honor and the power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they were and were created. And so Revelation is clear. And we are people of Revelation, are we not? So this is a day of, about Jesus. If it's something to check off on your list, I'm sorry, but at some point your list gets pretty long as far as how you keep the Sabbath, what you do, what you say, how you do all. Eventually it gets to the point where it gets exhausting. It doesn't become a delight anymore. And if it's not a delight anymore, whose day is it then? It's not Jesus' day anymore. It's your day with your list. And you've done the same thing that someone else has done historically. Then, Yeah, it's the right day. But if it's not linked to Jesus, haven't you tried to change the set times and laws and make it your own day rather than his day? And so our young people have an FBI sheet. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, is a scripture, young people. I'll give them a moment to write it down. I'll look it up. When you're sitting next to someone that you truly care about, are you worrying about how you measure up in their eyes? Are you always concerned about how they are not going to like you if you do something or, 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 you, or you don't do something? Are you? Is that truly friendship? To sit next to someone and wonder if they're checking off a list to see if you really are worthy to be their friend? No, if you're their friend, if you truly are their friend, you're there for the sake of the relationship. You're there, you enjoy being in their presence. And that's what Jesus gets at here in Matthew chapter 12, verse eight. You find that he mentions that the Sabbath was made for man. They're picking on Jesus. They're measuring Jesus according to their list. And you know what? How can you measure the creator according to your list? Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Verse 3 of Matthew 12, he entered the house of God. He and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If you had known 
in essence, that Jesus is saying that I uttered those words, that I created that day, then why would you condemn the one who created the day? Shouldn't he know exactly how to keep it? But I like lists. My wife will tell you that. I like organized things, things flowing a certain way, right? And, and there's that day, and I want to do it exactly right. But if that robs it of its purpose, then are you really keeping the Sabbath? Am I really keeping it? It's a drudgery. Well, do it until you like to do it. Keep making it a drudgery until you really like the drudgery. Uh, don't think so. Because it says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. His intention, it says here, the Sabbath is made for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. All human beings need this relationship and this rest. So he wants all of us to enjoy that. And I know some of you might need some proof here, but okay. So I enter the Sabbath on Friday night. And some people say, well, I do it on Sunday, or I do it on Friday, you know, or whatever. But it's pretty clear from the text when it's starting. I remember as a new believer, sitting in that small group of three of us, young people, in that youth correctional facility, somebody came up and said, well, you really don't know which day it is anyway. And that threw me off. So if you're in that camp, here's a little evidence for you. You know the preparation day, right? Joseph comes, asks for the body, okay? That's the preparation day. The Sabbath's about to begin. And don't go tell me that has something to do with, uh, with feast days and all of that. There's some of that in there but because of the Passover. But as you look here, it's called, we call it Good Friday. And it says the women who were with Jesus, who had come from Jesus from Galilee, followed Joseph, saw the tomb, how his body was laid in it. Then they went home, prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath. So this is a day after preparation day. And we typically call it Good Friday. But the text is more specific. On the first day of the week, which in the Greek it says, Miaton Sabbaton, the first after the Sabbath, they pick back up those spices, they go and they anoint his body. They, they, they go to prepare his body. And they find the tomb rolled away. And they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so if you look at it, you've got first day of the week, Miaton Sabbaton. Second day of the week, it, it has to do with the Sabbath, Okay. Deutero, you, you, go on, you go on down through all the days of the week. It's pretty clear then. Sundown Friday is the beginning. Jesus rests in the tomb on the Sabbath. He arises on Miaton, Sabbaton, the first day after the week, uh, first day of the Sabbath. And I'm not, I'm not the only one who believes this. Evangelicals even believe this. Decades ago, Harper Knapp noted that the Pharisaic tradition of fasting twice a week on the second and fifth days is well confirmed in the Talmud. And so this weekly cycle, miatone, sabbatone, and then, then the second day, and then the third day, all of this having the word Sabbath in it, and then you get to Sabbath itself, and it's called Sabbath. This weekly cycle has been well noted for years and years and years to the point where Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, the lexicon, they say the Jews fast deuteral, deuteri sabbaton and pimta sabbaton on the second and fifth days of the week, or Monday and Thursdays. And so the Sabbath became an anchor point in the weekly cycle. Every day built up to Sabbath. And so the first day of the week is Miaton Sabbaton. It cannot be the Sabbath, since it's the day after the Sabbath. So there I was in my young days. I wish I would have known all that Greek and everything. Uh, yeah. 
like it really does anything. I could have read the English version and noticed, hey, it's the first day of the week. You know, that would have been enough. But there it is. And he's resurrected on the Sabbath. And so here's a way that Jack Cologne puts it in his article. Preparation day, Sabbath, first day. And notice what Jesus does on the Sabbath. He rests. Completed work of salvation rests. So then the Sabbath is not only a creation day, it's a salvation day. It's a day that each week we come to, yes, we better be remembering it throughout the week, remembering that we're saved by grace, and then we get to Sabbath, and as a group, we experience pointing each other to salvation. That's why the sermon needs to be pointing people to the Savior and to salvation. So the Sabbath is a monument of rest and the cross. And those of you who like comparisons, here's one. Cross, origin. When was it? Before the creation of the world, right? Right? You find the Sabbath. If it originated in the Godhead, then it's before the creation of the world too, isn't it? We find in Ephesians that there's a heavenly family that we're linked to when we worship Jesus. Okay, so they're obviously having something to do with it. Access the cross by faith and trust. How about Sabbath? By a list or by faith and trust? I'm trusting that when I lay aside my work, and especially when I worked in the kitchen, and especially when I was sitting in that leadership chair, and then later on when I had to go looking for a job, I'm trusting that God's going to provide for me physically if I physically rest from that day and focus spiritually on Him. And so it's trust. Anybody who's ever had a Sabbath work problem knows it's trust. How about the historical process? Jesus dies on preparation day, rests on Sabbath, resurrected and has newness of life after resting on the Sabbath. And if you look over here, historically, we complete our work and rest in the knowledge of his salvation. Every single day of the week, we recognize his grace. But we get down to Sabbath, and if you've been too busy, then, you, then this, that, the best thing to do is to enter into that on Friday night, to just put aside everything and rest. We put aside our work physically and trust him completely for spiritual and physical salvation. And as Sabbath ends, then I'm ready to begin a new week. I feel good about coming together. I feel like I've been uplifted, and now I'm ready to start again. And so do you see the way that the Sabbath and the cross parallel each other? What's the duration of the cross? It's going to stand as a monument of mercy for eternity. And then the Sabbath, we know in Isaiah 66, it's there again after the new heavens and the new earth. And so it stands there as well. Two monuments. That's why the book of Hebrews says there is another day. There is another day. Meaning, today is a day of salvation. Joshua could not get them to enter into the rest. If you look at the book of Joshua, it's clear. He had lots to conquer still. But Jesus comes along. Jesus is this another Joshua, and he comes and he enters us into a rest, and it mentions the Sabbath there, and it links the Sabbath to salvation and says today is the day of salvation. That's the day he's talking about. Not physically just resting like a Jew, but resting each week in the reality that Jesus saves. And so that's what Hebrews means. It calls it a day of salvation. And we're not the only ones who are looking at the Sabbath now. This is Dan Allender. I, his little book was at a Christian bookstore on, I don't know, 90% off or something. And it said the Sabbath. And I said, interesting. Okay, what are these other guys saying about the Sabbath? 
Well, people who worship on Sunday are even groaning and wa- waiting for a rest. I mean, they really are. And this guy writes about it. He says, creation's good, yet it groans. It needs a Sabbath as surely as you and I do. The Sabbath needs to be entered with tenderness and care to be encouraged with the delight of love. What part of creation will you love this Sabbath? What part, portion of reality will you enter with senses aroused, ready and desiring a taste of goodness? What beauty will you receive and then give back as the praise and honor that it deserves? Will this be a day of delight and wonder and rest in Jesus for you? It's a delight. And he goes on and says it's like a child welcoming a special day. He, he cites Christmas, but I, I edit, left that one out, okay? But he says, receiving the Sabbath is like welping, welcoming the day with the innocent and risk-taking heart of a child. Imagine what the children feel. Like on a birthday or whatever, there they are, right? And there's, there's a celebration that's going to happen because they're, they're another year older or, or some kind of celebration. Their eyes are beaming. Their legs twitch with abandon. Their bodies twitch with excitement. This is the day that comes like a caress, wiping away the fear, the sorrow, the somber memories. How could we not be excited if, on, if we only allowed ourselves to suspend disbelief and enter the day as a delight? And so all of these wonderful sentiments from this book, but he links it to, to Jesus and says, are we delighting in Jesus? And I could show you quotation after quotation where we link this monument to Jesus. Rest definitely a monument, but that rest by itself is fine, and I remember many Sabbaths where I would go to church, and then I'd go home, and, and that was just me and God, right, but, and I remember that, and having those devotions, and then going out and witnessing, and that's good, but the original rest had relationships just embedded in it, marriage and the family especially, and that's where we come to this whole Mother's Day weekend, if we truly understand the oneness that God wants for us individually and as a family, then yeah, we're going to uplift every member of the family. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you can read in Child Guidance the, the whole role of the mother and how important it really is. Okay? But that oneness concept, that importantness of the mother and is something that we can experience as a family every week. Each one of us is important in this church family. When you come here, you should come here in peace. When you come here to this place, it should be a place of delight, like that Garden of Eden was called the Garden of Delight. When you come here, this should be a place of rest as a church family. If a contentious spirit rules your church, you will not enter into the rest. We will sit beside each other with our lists, and the Sabbath will not be a delight. And so as I look at this original oneness. There they were, inseparable unity, male and female, inseparable unity, made in his image. And our opening song talked about the Godhead in the family, and I had never sung that before, but I thought, wow, you know, it's a beautiful words to that song, and thank you for leading us in that song. But can you imagine God in our families every day, in our homes every day, in our relationships every day? What would that look like? It said that he made woman from that rib. And we looked at that human oneness before, Ish and Ishah, how close they were, just even in the language itself. That human oneness was his desire. But does it stand as a monument equal with that of Sabbath rest and the cross? Maybe not equal in your mind, but isn't it still an important monument, the family, 
in relationships. It says that they were both naked and they were not ashamed, that they're, they're smooth right from the Creator's hands, called very good. And if Sabbath was made for them and not them for the Sabbath, then yes, relationships are intimately linked to the Sabbath. They're just as much of a monument as the Sabbath and the cross. And so Jesus restores that oneness. He takes on that penalty, and, and instead of, you know, Adam should have been the one to cry out, where are you? But there Jesus is on the cross. This is from last week, and he cries out, where are you? And he had cried, he had, that had been said before, Jehovah God called out, where are you? To Adam, after Adam had sinned. And so Jesus is there. Where are you, Father? Father covers his boy in shame with darkness. And like Adam, a limb was missing. The side was cut open so we would not have to be alone, so that we could have a perfect relationship with God. And so that relationship Adam and Eve had before the fall points us to the cross. And so that's why I put this up there. So there you have marriage and the family. We were made in his image before, and we find that if that was the case, the image of God, did the image of God exist before our world began? Yes. The blueprint in his mind was already there. Okay? And so the Sabbath, yes, before the creation of the world. The basis of this relationship of the family is by faith and trust. If you don't have a mutual faith in the family, most premarital counseling things will tell you that if you don't have a faith and a trust as far as some major things in your, in your relationship, then the relationship's over with. And so the same thing happens in the family. We must have faith and trust, a faith in God, a trust of one another. The historical process, Jesus united Adam and Eve on the preparation day. Jesus rested with them on the, in the Garden of Delight on the Sabbath day. It was a day of delight. And then they went forth, I'm not sure for how many weeks or whatever, but they went forth working, didn't they? Didn't they go forth in the newness of life? Each week, they're gathering, worshiping as a family, and that duration of that relationship, they'd eaten the tree of life forever, you know, would it have lasted forever? Yes, that was the original plan. And so we find marriage and the Sabbath are both there at the beginning, two pillars at the beginning, if you will, or monuments standing there, reminding us of Jesus. And so why does Satan hate those monuments? Pretty clear. If the cross points to the Creator, the rest points to the Creator, the relationships point to the Creator, then do away with all of them and you won't have people remembering the Creator as much. Pulverize this face off of Mount Rushmore, this face off of Mount Rushmore, and this one off of Mount Rushmore. They'll have to redo it all to slow it down, won't it? That's what Satan thinks he's done to the Sabbath, to the cross, and to the family. But he really hasn't. He really hasn't if in, in one of our, each one of our hearts it's chiseled. If it's chiseled in each one of our hearts, the cross, the rest, and our families, the relationships, can he touch that monument? Not unless we let him. And so the image of God can be displayed in our homes, in our groups. And as it's displayed, it becomes a threat because then people begin to remember the creator, remembering him as the one who died for us, made us, and is wanting us to be one in him. And then he'll try to pulverize that. But what's the cure for that? Look at this, Mount of Blessing. The cross of Calvary is to be lifted high above the people, absorbing their minds 
and concentrating their thoughts. My goal as a pastor is very simple, pointing you to Jesus. If you think that's too simple or too naive or whatever, then go ahead and keep reading the Bible because everything points to Jesus. And so our thoughts, everything should be absorbed into that. Yes, there's other things to do besides read the Bible but, and think of Jesus, but we must do those things with Jesus as our mind. Then all the spiritual faculties will be charged with divine power direct from God. Then there will be a concentration of the energies in, div- in genuine work for the master. You really want to work for the master? Then you've got to know him and think about him all the time. Otherwise, how can you work for him? The workers will send forth to the world beams of light as living agencies to enlighten the earth. He, Christ, brings the human race into union with the divine that he may communicate to the world the mysteries of the incarnate love. If, if the cross is in your heart, the, the love of God is in your heart, if the rest permeates your being, and if your relationships are of oneness with him, then, then the world will see and communicate, communicated through you his love. And they will want that same divine union that you have. When I was at that facility there, far from family, the Sabbath felt like it linked me to my heavenly family. I couldn't get to a church building. There was no Sabbath worship groups there at the Rogue Valley Youth Correctional Facility, but I felt like that I was part of something, that, that I was not just on my own, because when that group was disbanded, because somebody threw a monkey wrench in, you don't know which day it is anyway, then I continued. I went back and restudied it, and I said, no, no, I, it's got to be the day is th- of salvation is the Sabbath. I started rem- thinking about that, and so I started keeping it again, and, and I felt every week, even though I was sitting there by myself, that I was somehow linked to my heavenly family. You know, th- the same thing happens for each one of us, whether we have immediate relationships around us or whether we're by ourselves, we can still be linked to the heavenly family. And when I was a new Christian, when I finally had the day arrived in May, and here we are in May, right? In May of 1999, where I could go to a house of worship, my heart had already been prepared. I, I, w- I wanted to be there. And so there I was. I walked in the doors that Sabbath. There was a pretty girl up here playing the guitar. It was my wife. And there I was, not focused on her, <laughs> not right away anyway. I was actually thanking the Lord they had youth in the church. But there I was, worshiping, not understanding everything, but worshiping with my family. And after we got married, I remember at Milo Academy, there we were, the Sabbath quilt would come out, and we'd put it on, we would have a beautiful candle we'd, we'd light, different things we'd do, special things that we would do, tablecloth, different things, welcoming in that Sabbath. Uh, things get a little more chaotic when you add kids to the mix, so all those fancy things kind of go aside, but every Friday night, there I am. That's, if you wonder where I'm at Friday night, I'm at home. Because to me, Pointing my kids to the cross and Jesus on a daily basis is important, but also ushering in the rest is important. And so there I am, and everything's been put aside. The house is as, as picked up as a house with four kids can be. And there we are, sitting down, resting. While the kids are listening, we're playing songs where they can, they're singing Jesus Loves Me, and these other different songs, and they're praising the Lord. And then we, we sit down together there after we've sung and we pull out the little nature book and we begin to read about how God made something special in nature. And we pray, I pray a blessing over my family that God would help us all throughout not only the end of the week, but throughout the next week. Bless us, Lord. And I pray for my wife and I pray for my oldest boy and I go on down and I just pray for each one of them. And to me then, the monuments come together. 
Yeah, I am busy the next day. And I used to drive a lot on Sabbath. But if we could come together as a family, experiencing the love of Jesus, that first monument, experiencing the rest, and in a relationship, starting off the Sabbath with love, then I feel like I've lifted up the monuments in my heart and in my home. So I don't know what it looks like in your daily life, in your week. But the challenge is going to be those monuments. Do we remember the cross? Do we remember to rest? Do we remember the relationships? Because if we do, the image of God, the love at home, will be very apparent, and it will flow out to the world around us. So yes, Mother's Day comes and goes, but each week we celebrate the family. Each week we celebrate, and in my home we pray over the wife and all the kids. Each week we rest in Jesus with our heavenly family. And so the closing song is called Love at Home, which means that these truths have to go beyond this building to your home. And when that love is flowing through your home, it will then flow out to the world around. And they will see a monument greater than Mount Rushmore. They will see God's love. You guys got it? Number 652. Number six. There's beauty all around when there's love at home. There is joy in every sound when there's love at home. Smiling fair on every side, time to softly, sweetly glide when there's love at home. Love at home. Love at home. Time to softly. Sweetly glad when there's love at home. Kindly heaven smiles above when there's love at home. All the earth is filled with love when there's love at home. Sweetest sings the brooklet by, brighter beams the azure sky. Oh, there's one who smiles on high when there's love at home. Love at home. Love at Time to stop.
softly, sweetly glide when there's love at home. Jesus, make me holy thine, then there's love at home. May I sacrifice be mine, then there's love at home. Safely from all harm, all rest, with no sinful care distressed, through thy tender mercy blessed, when there's love at home. Love at home, love at home. Time to softly, sweetly glide when there's love at home. Father in heaven, we're thankful that the Godhead dwells in each heart, in each home. And you guide us to remember the cross. You guide us to remember to rest. You guide us to remember the oneness we should have in our relationships. So thank you, Lord, for these three monuments of oneness. And I'm sure there's many other ways to remember that oneness concept. But Lord, help us to remember these areas in our homes, with our families when we see them, or we interact with them. Guide us to have these monuments in mind so that they will see your love through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.